speak the world into existence, spin it, and just watch it. Eh, let's see what happens. Let's see what they do with it. Uh-uh. No, he's involved in every aspect of humanity. And the story so far is this. If you missed it, we'll recap real quickly. God existed before it all, and we could really stop there. Right? I mean, that is mind-blowing. He existed before it all, but he didn't stop there. And out of his fullness and out of his love, he created. He spoke and he created the world. Everything in it, humanity. And he made the world, uh, as, as Dad talked about a few weeks ago, with everything needed uh, for us to fulfill our purpose. He created the environment just right for us to have a relationship with God. And he knew that was what was best for us. And uh, that's what we were made for, to live in relationship with God. But the reality is there's only two chapters out of 1,800 in the whole Bible that are good like that. And the rest of the story is this, is that we, instead of believing God and, and, and saying, God, we trust you that you know what's best because you created it, instead of doing that, we said, nah, I know what's best. I'm going to go my way. I'm going to do my thing. That's called sin. And when sin entered the world, it had disastrous effects. It broke everything. It didn't just affect Adam and Eve. It affected all of us. It affected our social order. It affected our plants and animals. It broke everything. It exploded and it destroyed. And for the first 2,000 years of human history, uh, God really only revealed himself to a few people. We've got Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, we've got Noah and the flood. We've got Job and his great distress, right? Only a few people. But then God chose to do something amazing. He chose to reveal himself to a man we call Abraham or Abram. And God began to pour himself to Abraham just like he had to Adam. He walked closely with him and he talked with him and he revealed who he was. And he told him that he was going to do three things for him. We talked about it last week. That God... God made a covenant with him and said, I'm going to give you a land that's yours of your possession, which is funny because he was a nomad. He's going to give him a, a great nation of descendants, which is funny because he's old and he has no kids. And he was going to bless him. Abraham was a nobody. Nobody knew who he was. And he said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. These were all very ironic. But God said, I'm going to do this. And the rest of the story ambitiously we're going to see today, uh, is, is how that moves forward, right? How, did, how does the descendants come about? How did the blessing come about? How does the land come about? And uh, I think this was a cruel joke. Uh, if you're counting today, there's 25 chapters. Last week, uh, it was nine verses. We got 25 chapters today. And I'm the guy, Glenn, that wants to expose you to as much of the Bible as possible. And even for me, I'm like, all right. So, but the goal of this is this. We're not going to read all 25 chapters. The goal, amen. There's a Super Bowl at some point today. 530. We'll be done. We'll be well done. Well done by then. The goal here is to see the big story, right? Not to get bogged down in the details. That's the whole goal of this series. And that's, that's the goal of our lives, too. Sometimes we just get so bogged down in the details and the, the messiness of it is what we're going to call it today, the brokenness of it, that we fail to see the big picture. We fail to see what God's really up to in the whole story. And so the 30,000-foot view of today's story is this. Number one, it's on your sheet. If you need a sheet, they're on the end of your pew. Um, 
The 30,000 view of the story is this. Number one, God is faithful to keep his promises, despite what the circumstances are. It doesn't look like it all the time, but God is faithful to keep his promises, even when it doesn't seem that way in the moment. So we're going to see God gives Abraham a son, Isaac. He gives Isaac two sons, Jacob and Esau. He gives Jacob 12 sons through four women, which we're going to talk about. And they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this isn't a slight to women and daughters because they play a huge role in this story today. But God is building a nation. And by the end of today, there will be 70 people from what there were two last week. Number two, God is faithful. He's passing his blessing on. And, and, and a lot of this story has to do with, okay, who's it going to go to? Who's next? Who's next? And God uh, passes the blessing from Abraham to his son Isaac. And then Isaac passes it to Jacob in some messy circumstances. And Jacob passes it to his son Judah, the fourth son. And eventually that finds its, all the, find it, finds its way all the way to David and then to Jesus. And that's ultimately how God is going to be a blessing to all the nations. But he's being faithful to fulfill his promises. That's number one. Number two... These greats of the faith are not perfect. In fact, they are very, very far from it. Uh, Barry, what did you call them before? What did you call them just a while ago? The, the scoundrels, the founding scoundrels of our faith. Uh, I didn't think of that word. I like it, though. In fact, to be honest, their lives are very messy and ugly. And maybe many of us, hopefully all of us, can relate to them. But they're not perfect. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the things, rape, murder, revenge, incest, prostitution, polygamy, lying, deception. This isn't a rap sheet for the Angelina County Jail. These are these men in Genesis 26 through 50, okay? So I'm not going to gloss over that because this is what happens when sin enters the world. It breaks everything. It breaks how our relationships are with one another. It breaks everything. Sin explodes and sin destroys. That's what it does. But God's faithful, the scoundrels aren't perfect, they're messy. And three, God uses their brokenness, their sin, their junk to fulfill his purpose. It's what he does. Through this mess, through this fog, through all the sinfulness that they find themselves, no matter how bad it gets, God was still there, right? And some of you need to hear that today. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how messy life circumstances are around you because of your sin or someone else's, God is there. He hasn't left you. He never leaves in this story. He is the author of the story. He doesn't all of a sudden go, uh, I'm done with the book. No, he keeps writing his story. Our story is kind of ugly and messy sometimes too. It's not perfect. But God promises us in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's what we're going to see today. God is working all these things, the broken, messy junk, to fulfill his purpose. Okay, we ready? 25 chapters? Let's go. Genesis 26, uh, starting in verse 1 through 5. I don't have a fancy map today uh, or a, a timeline, but it's all right. Genesis 26, 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So at this point, Abraham has passed away. It's already moved on from him. And God reveals himself to Isaac with a lot of the same language that that God promised Abraham. He gives him the same promises of a land, of descendants, of a blessing that would bless all the families of the earth. And Isaac, uh, unbeknownst to me why he would want this, he takes three wives. Uh, Again, we're not going to gloss over this, the messiness of the story. And I don't even understand why you would want three wives, to be honest, but it's messy, right? I don't suggest it. I just see problems with that. I'm just going to say it. And it causes strife, tension in his family. But God's using that. And, and, And he says that God gives him two sons, Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis 27, see, we already made it through one chapter. We already made it through one. We're, we're well on our way. In Genesis 27, Isaac is getting old. He's, he, it says that he's basically blind, and he's going to pass the blessing on to one of his sons, Jacob and Esau. So you've got Esau, who's the oldest, and he's the father's favorite. Again, I don't suggest that either in your family. And you've got uh, Jacob, the youngest, and he's his mother's favorite. Uh, there's strife, there's tension, there's messiness. And normally the blessing would go to the oldest son, right? But Jacob and Rebekah, his wife, they kind of connive some circumstances. They go to these extravagant links to uh, have, sorry, there's so many names today, to have Isaac bless Jacob, not Esau. And so there's some goat hair involved, there's a meal, there's, there's smells, there's all these things. And he goes in and Isaac thinks he's blessing Esau. But Jacob tricks and deceives and cheats his way into the blessing. And here's what it says in Genesis 27, 27 through 29. His blessing over him. To see the smell of my son as the smell of, the, of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is similar blessing language uh, to to what God had given Abraham, and then what God had given Isaac, and now Isaac's giving that to Jacob. But the honest truth is, this is messy. What Jacob did was deceitful. It was straight lying, right? Why would God allow that? Why would God bless that? What was done in deceit? Why would God use that? Jacob's name literally means he cheats cheater. Now, I haven't heard that one. There's a lot of uh, new and interesting names today for people to name their kids. I've never heard anybody name their son cheater, right? You don't want to introduce yourself in an interview. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm cheater, right? Jacob's name says who he is, and that's what he had been. That was his identity. Surely God won't use this man, this cheater, in his plan, right? He's broken. He's messed up, but that's not true. Here's the big picture of the story. God is using imperfect, messy people in imperfect, messy circumstances to accomplish his perfect and beautiful plan. So Jacob tricks Esau out of this blessing, and he's got to flee. He's got to run, because Esau literally wants to kill him. And if Jacob stays in the land that God had promised him, he's going to die. So he goes north, back to Haran. I don't have the map. He goes back to Haran, where they're from. 
back to uh, Rebecca's uncle, Rebecca's brother, his uncle, Laban. And here's what it says on the way uh, God reveals himself to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13 through 15. Jacob lays down for sleep one night and he has this vision. And it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. It's great, right? God reveals himself to Jacob, and you're thinking, wait, 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 this is really messy, right? Why? Jacob is fleeing the land that God just promised him. He's having to leave because of his sinfulness, because of his cheating, right? He's having to, to maybe not go the route that you would think he, he would, right? But God is using this. We don't see it yet, and we don't see it in our stories a lot of times. Things get messy and clouded and broken, and it's like, God, how are you in this? Wait, I don't understand. This, this, is, this wasn't my plan. But God is using messy, imperfect people in messy, imperfect circumstances to accomplish his perfect and beautiful plan. Genesis 29. Sorry, I'm like, I'm going. Genesis 29. Jacob arrives in Haran. He meets Laban, and he falls in love, Right? It was one of the reasons they sent him there, was to find a wife from their people. And he falls in love with one of the daughters, Rachel. She's the youngest. And he agrees uh, to work seven years in order to get the right to marry her. Now, I didn't have this arrangement with my father-in-law. Uh, I would have done it. I would have worked 14, right? But he agrees to work seven years for this beautiful woman that he's fallen in love with. And just like Jacob had, had cheated his brother Esau, Laban cheats him. And instead of getting to marry Leah, he has to marry Rachel. I guess the ugly older sister. I don't know. Don't know what she looked like. And he sin interacts again. And he agrees to work another seven years because he loved her so much. So at the end of this, his time in Haran, he ends up with two wives. Again, I don't recommend this. Uh, but it's messy. Right? He's got a wife he loves and a wife he doesn't love. Maybe even hates. That reminds him of sin every time he looks at her. And you thought your marriage was hard, right? You got, he's got a wife he loves and a wife he hates, and he's stuck. But it's about to amplify, right? Because not only does he have wives, there's about to be children. And things get messier in Genesis 30. Leah, the older sister, is jealous of Rachel, the younger sister. Why? Because Jacob loves her, and he doesn't love Leah. And God sees that Leah is hated, and he opens her womb to have kids. And she starts to use that to try to buy the love of Jacob. And she has four sons pretty quickly. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Of course, this makes Rachel jealous because, yeah, he loves me, but she's got four sons. I've got nothing. She's barren. So it gets messier. She gives her servant to Jacob. Don't understand this. To sleep with her, it'll be like it's my child. And not just once, but twice. That's where we get Dan and Naphtali. It's messy. Well, that infuriates Leah, and she can't have any kids at that moment, so she gives her servant to Jacob. Not just once, but twice. That's where we get Gad and Asher. Not only that, they begin bargaining for sleeping time with Jacob. I'm just, just being honest. This is what it says. They're selling mandrakes, and there's money involved about who gets to sleep with him. 
And eventually Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. That's ten if you're counting. And finally God steps in. He opens Rachel's womb, and she has the eleventh son named Joseph. Right? And at this point, God steps in the story, and he tells Jacob, it's okay, it's time to leave. Twenty years have passed at this point. I guess that makes sense, yeah, twenty years. He tells him, you've got to leave Haran and go back to the land that I promised I would give you. So Jacob is obedient, but he is scared, right? Why? Because Esau is still there. Esau hated him. He had to leave that land that God promised to give him. But God is using imperfect, messy people and imperfect, messy circumstances to accomplish his perfect and beautiful plan. In Genesis 31 and 32, we're covering two chapters at a time. Jacob, Jacob leaves Laban. He leaves everything behind there, and he heads, and he worries as he heads down south to Canaan to Israel that he's going to be destroyed. And in Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12, it says this. And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, me. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And in his moment of despair, in this messiness, where obedience is hard, and we find ourselves here, where, we're, where being obedient to God is not necessarily easy. He prays to God, and he cries out, God, you, you're telling me to do this, but here's what awaits me if I do that. And this, God, you, I, don't, I can't fit those together, but somehow you're telling me to do this, and so I'm going to do it, but I need you to be faithful to your side, right? And he, he cries out to God, and we find ourselves there, yes? We're being obedient to God. We're following God is not maybe what's best in the eyes of the world, but he says, he prays, and I think we ought to pray in that moment, God, God, uphold me, be faithful to me, God, fulfill your purpose in my life. Jacob returns, Genesis 33, and it's anticlimactic, right? He thinks he's going to get slaughtered, and Esau just, no big deal, hey, welcome back, missed you, bud. That's not what he says, but basically, and the only thing, only way I can reconcile that is God changed Esau's heart, right? Because he needed to sustain Jacob and his family in the land. God's working in these messy circumstances. And we don't see it unless we zoom back, uh, zoom out and see how God was working. At this point in the story, uh, God changes Jacob's name. And this is where we get Israel. And uh, Jacob, his name meant what? Cheater, right? And God changes his name and you think, oh, this is a chance for God to really slap a real positive identity on him and name him like grace or redemption or some word that means that, right? No, he names him Israel, which means, and there's some debate, but most people say it means he strives with God or he wrestles with God. Or it could be the other way, God wrestles with him. You're like, what? And, and that's what I thought this week as I, I looked at that again. And I thought, what does that represent? But it's this picture, right? That the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and us for that matter, we wrestle. There, there's times where things are really good and, and we're following God and things are working. And then, then there's tension. 
There's brokenness, there's sin, right? There's this rubbing against each other. And it's this picture of Israel is this, the identity means they wrestle with God. They, they, don't, they don't always jive, and that's us and our sinfulness. We, we don't want to believe God's word at times. We want to do what we want to do. And then times we're good. We, yeah, praise God, love him, following him. And then other times we're not. At this point, Rachel has one last son, Benjamin, which brings us to 12 not 12, 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and Rachel dies in labor, and things get even messier, because now he has a wife he doesn't love, 12 sons from four different women. Whew, that stresses me out. That's a lot of dysfunction. That's a lot of brokenness in one family who is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Do you see the messiness here? In Genesis 37, Joseph, the 11th son, again is the favorite of his father. Parents, just learn from them, right? Just don't have favorites, right? Love them equally. Joseph, the favorite son of the father, um, because it was Rachel's first son. And God shows up to Joseph. He's, he's, a, he's a boy, uh, probably. And he gives him two dreams. And in these dreams, basically the point is this, is that your, your parents, your your siblings, the whole family will bow down to you. And Joseph's a little brash, and so he just tells them, hey, I had this dream, you're all going to bow down to me. All right, let's make it happen right now. Come on. All right. He's just bold about it. You're all going to bow down to me one day. And his brothers are like, dude, you're 11th in line. There are 10 of us before you. You are leftovers at best. Maybe not even leftovers. They're disgusted by this. This was offensive to them and for other reasons because of the father's love for him and favoritism of him. And so they patched this plan to kill him. They're out in the field one day, and Joseph's coming to give them a message, and they say, look, let's, here's our chance. Let's kill him and be done with him. We'll take his coat to dad, tell him a wild animal killed him. We'll just be done with him. We don't have to listen to his nonsense anymore. But one of the older brothers has this uh, a little bit of a moral conscience, not a lot. He says, oh, let's just throw him in a pit, big pit. He can't get out of it. He'll die in there eventually. We don't have to actually kill him. And he thought, I'll come back later and rescue him. But in the meantime, his other brothers thought, you know what? Instead of just killing him, let's profit from him. Let's sell him into slavery. I don't know. Anybody ever had that thought? I would love to sell my sibling into slavery. Okay, don't raise your hands. That was not appropriate. Uh, Right? It's weird, right? You hate your brother so much you would want to sell him into slavery? They do. They lie to their father and they tell their father that he is dead. Right? And how could God... This is a messy family. There's nothing perfect about these people, and yet God is at work. If they couldn't see it, I doubt. We can years later, but it's messy. Genesis 39, God's hand is on Joseph's life. He has this plan. He's working this plan. And Joseph gets sold into the house of a man named Potiphar in Egypt. And Potiphar is a, a high official in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he goes into Potiphar's house to serve. Genesis 39, verse 2 through 4 say this. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him. 
and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Right? God's with him. God has a plan, and he's blessing his life. And But it gets worse. In time, Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive, and she looks at him one day when they're in a room by themselves, and she tries to seduce him. And Joseph, who knows why, I guess because of his moral character or his fear of God or something, he resists. He says, I'm not going to defile my master. I'm not going to defile you in this way. And he runs. He literally flees from sexual temptation, like Paul tells us, right? He runs. And she fakes rape. She yells and Potiphar believes her, as you should, right? As he should have. And he throws Joseph in prison. Just when things start to look up for him, he goes to prison. But God hasn't left. No matter how messy it gets, God's still right there. Genesis 39, verse 21 through 23. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now in time, in Genesis 40, Pharaoh uh, sent two of his primary servants, the cupbearer and the baker, to the same prison where Joseph is. And the baker and cupbearer one night have these dreams. They don't know what they mean, and they start asking around, is anybody able to tell us what these mean? And God reveals the meaning to Joseph, right? And so he shares it with them. He's bold. He's brash. And the Lord said uh, that the cupbearer's dream meant that in three days he would be restored and go back to Pharaoh. The baker's three days you would be slaughtered, right? And they both come true. They both come true. And, and Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, hey, when you go back to the Pharaoh, tell him my situation. Maybe, maybe I can get out of here. Maybe I can get escaped. And in Genesis 41, the cupbearer forgets. He's just happy to not be dead. But lo and behold, Pharaoh has two dreams, you remember? Pharaoh has two dreams. The first, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows. Second, seven healthy uh, heads of grain and seven skinny thin ones, not healthy and the bad ones eat the good ones, the skinny ones eat the fat ones, and no one could understand what it meant, and Pharaoh sent people all around trying to figure out, anybody in Egypt can understand this. And the cupbearer remembers, there's a guy, he's in prison, and he knows how to interpret dreams because the Lord is with him. And in Genesis 41, 14 through 16, here's what it says. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you, are a, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so God gives Joseph this interpretation, right? There's going to be seven years of plenty, abundance, right? More than enough, like they've never had before, and followed by it, there's going to be seven years of famine. And Joseph doesn't just stop there and tell him what his dream means. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to appoint somebody to oversee this, and we need to collect food in these good years so that we'll have extra in the lean years, right? And Pharaoh is so impressed by his interpretation and his plan that he offers him the job, right? Joseph, who was left for dead, sold into slavery, 
falsely accused of rape. He's gone from the pit to the palace, right? He's gone from the depths of definite death, sorry, too many Ds, all the way to Pharaoh, right-hand man, second most powerful man in the world. Now the famine spreads in Genesis 42, about to pick up. And for a year, Joseph's brothers do okay, but eventually they need food, and so they go to Egypt. And who's there giving out food? Joseph, right? And he recognizes his brothers. Uh, ten of them came. He knows who they are, and so he, probably in his flesh, treats them pretty harshly. And they cower down before him. They're bowing down before him. They're begging for mercy. They need food, or their whole family is going to die. So Joseph gives them food, but he says, no, I'm holding one here until you bring back Benjamin, right? I want to see this other brother you talk about, right? He just wants to see his little brother. So they go back, and father won't let him, right? He's like, no, you're not sending my son. I've already lost one. Joseph, I've, I've got another one in prison in Egypt. You're not taking Benjamin. They come back eventually because they have to have food. They bring Benjamin. And Joseph, this time, brings him into his house. And they're fearful for their lives. They're thinking, man, this guy is nuts. They don't know who he is. But eventually Joseph breaks down. And in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 10, he reveals himself. And here's what he says. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. <laughs> who knows what they're thinking. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. You remember the one who you sold into Egypt? But now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And Jacob sends for his father. His father comes. There's this reunion and a whole family of Jacob, now Israel, is 70. 70 people. They're in the land. Everything that they do multiplies greatly. They're blessed beyond all measure. And then finally in Genesis 50, Jacob dies. He dies in Egypt. And he passes on the blessing to Judah. And Joseph's brothers are scared for their life. They're thinking, now is the time he's about to take revenge. And here's what Joseph says to them in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. He didn't. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him, just like the dream, and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph looked at them and said this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what? It's 25 chapters in like 20 minutes. Who, Who cares? No, don't clap, please. Please don't clap. Who cares, right? Okay, great story. Awesome. What what does that matter for our lives today? Why does this matter? And the honest truth is we are no different than these people in the story, the scoundrels that Barry called them, right? We're no different. Our lives, our, our town, our country is messy. It's broken. You know why? Because sin exploded and sin is destroying, right? But God also steps in, right? And he has a way. I mean, we live in messy homes. We live in messy families. No one is perfect. No one's even close, right? We experience this good, the bad, and the ugly. You know why? Because sin. Sin's when we, you know, Joseph at the end, he says, am I in the place of God? So I'm not going to take revenge. That's, that's what sin is. When we put ourselves in the place of God and say, no, I know what's best. I'm going to do whatever's right in my eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. Sin's when we take control of our story and try to write it for ourselves, thinking we know better than the author and the creator. And faith is the opposite. It's just like Joseph said, am I in the place of God? No. Right? I'm going to defer to God on this one. I'm going to trust God. When he says this is the way we ought to handle this, I'm going to do it like that. Why? Because he made us. He made us for relationship with him, perfect relationship with him. You and I have so many opportunities in the midst of our stories and all the details and the the brokenness and the drama and the whatever. We have so many opportunities to forget that God is still in control. We have so many opportunities to think that God has taken his hand off the situation, that God isn't there, or God doesn't care. You have so many of those opportunities every day, and I'm here to tell you he hasn't. God has not taken his hand off your story. God has not taken his hand off our story. God is right there. He's continuing to write it. And the end of the story is that he makes all things right. Sin has exploded and sin has destroyed, but God is reining that in and God is fixing us in his grace. God hasn't lost control and he's using messy, imperfect people in messy, imperfect circumstances to write his beautiful and perfect plan which is restoring us to the thing, the only thing that will give us life, a relationship with him. Let me pray for us. God, forgive me when I forget that you're in control. Forgive me when I, when I don't see your hand at work, when I, when I doubt that you're in a situation, God. God, help me to see that you are working all things together for the good God, help me to see that you haven't lost control, that you're still right there in the midst of every story. God, I pray for those in the room who find themselves in messy circumstances, broken, sinful circumstances, God. God, may they not lose sight of you. May they not lose sight uh, of the fact that you have a plan, you have a purpose. And we don't always see it in the moment, God, but help them to trust you. Like Like these men did at times. Help them to have faith in you, to believe you when you say that you've got this. God, be with us. God, we know we need you.
God, I pray that we would draw near to you and find comfort and peace, uh, which is what you want to give us, God. So I pray that you'd be with us, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. God would stand.